Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I'd like to thank my latest subscribers on Patreon, Jen, Pierre and Tony, for their support and all my other Patreon supporters. If you would like to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium and you'll find many ways to subscribe, extra bonus material and a whole new series of interviews to enjoy, all for the price of a pint of beer once a month. You can also support the podcast by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This will help the show reach a bigger audience and will be greatly appreciated by me. Today, I chat to a young American conductor who shot to fame after winning the 2015 Besançon International Conducting Competition. After periods as assistant in LA and in Manchester with the Halle Orchestra, he starts as chief conductor with the Nordwest Deutsche Philharmonie in 2021. It's a great pleasure to welcome Jonathan Haywood. Jonathan, lovely to talk to you today. How are you? Doing very, very well. Pleasure to be able to speak to you. Um, pleasure's all mine. Um, you're in my old neck of the woods in Kent, uh, Sandwich, you, you were telling me. Um, what's yeah. it like down there? And are you are you keeping busy during these funny times? Yes, yeah, so I've got a, quite a bit of a routine in the morning, um, which has kind of kept me sane throughout it all. But uh, But it's also just been nice to do a lot of walking in this beautiful neck of the woods, uh, really close to the beach and also really, really close to a lot of farmland. So it's been a lot of walking this past lockdown, for sure. Um, With everybody, I go back to the very beginning and I talk about your very first early musical experiences. I read that you're from the United States, but your accent really isn't very pronounced as being American. But uh, I'm right though, aren't I? You're from the United States. Yes, I'm originally from the United States. I entirely blame my accent on my beautiful girlfriend, uh, now now fiance. Um, but uh, but yes, no, I, I got rid of that when I when I came here. Uh, but I'm originally from. I was raised in a small city called Charleston in South Carolina. Mm. And when did music first enter into your life? I guess to some people they would consider it slightly late so I was about nine years old when I started singing in a, in the school choir and after kind of a very embarrassing moment of singing a solo and completing <laughs> completely forgetting the words I decided that uh, singing probably wasn't the best idea for me and so I swiftly moved on to the string program in what we would call the public school system, which I believe is everyone calls the state kind of state school system, Mm. um, where the music program was entirely free. Um, So um, I remember, I think definitely about 10 years old and I I started this string program with intention to play the violin. Uh, And then the day came where we picked up our instruments and the line was completely out the door for the violins and no one was sit standing next to the cello line. So the impatient 10 year old that I was, I just swapped lines and swapped instruments. And my mother's uh, reaction was quite, quite something actually. I always remember it when I brought this big old, much bigger instrument uh, home with me. The cello being probably about at least as tall as you were at the age of 10. I'm pretty sure it was taller, must yeah. have been taller. <laughs> I think it definitely was actually. And so cello from then on, or were you also playing piano and things like that? No, no, it was primarily cello. I mean, we, I I come from a single parent household, so it was kind of a struggle to keep any sort of instrument or private lessons going. So I always loved the idea of playing piano. Um, And my cello teacher always had, he had a really lovely piano in his home. But I, but I could only really kind of, mainly focus on the cello um, for financial reasons, but but I got a lot of support um, from that as well. Very similar story to myself. I didn't start playing the violin until I was nine. Um, All right. And we didn't have a piano at home, and I was the only person who played a musical instrument, and yeah. uh, I didn't really take up the piano until I had to, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, when I, when, yeah. when um, it was needed to get into music college, and I discovered I was pretty bad at it. So. All of my experiences were were string based. Um, yeah, well, rightfully so. Same here. Uh, but good enough to get to the Boston Conservatory. Uh, I read as a cellist. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 Well, yeah. Um, 
it was quite a fight, you know, uh, but, but but we got there in the end and my piano skills were certainly not up to chops uh, and probably even not even at the end of Boston Observatory. Um, but but yes, nonetheless, I, I did attended uh, attended uh, Boston Conservatory of Music as cello, at a cello performance degree. Yeah. And what orchestras had you played in before you got to Boston or was Boston the first place that you encountered big ensembles? Yeah, I mean... I, uh, being in Charleston, um, there wasn't a lot of access, particularly for younger students. I mean, I was in the, you know, Charleston Symphony Youth Orchestra, so I learned a lot through that. Um, and even really before cello, before going to Boston Conservatory, I actually was interested already in conducting through a high school mentor that I had. Um, so as, as far as playing in like a professional ensemble as a cellist, that all really started in Boston. Um, and I kind of always, when going to Boston Conservatory, my, the end goal was, you know, was conducting already, you know, mm. when I started and I applied. Um, but the cello was kind of the means to get there, essentially. Yeah, yeah I understand. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I was slightly different. I was focused. Uh, I saw a Facebook post the other day about a TV series I saw when I was 15 or 16 called The Life of an Orchestra, which was about the London Symphony Orchestra. Fly on the Wall mm. documentary, a whole four one-hour episodes. Can you imagine that these days? Um, <laughs> uh, it would have been, you know, three half-an-hour jobs these days. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and from that day onwards, all I wanted to do was play in an orchestra. Um, and conductor right. for me came later. Um, oh, right, yeah. But but for you, obviously, conducting was, was a big thing. Actually, you're the second cellist who went to conservatory um, and knew he wanted to be a conductor. Alpes Chohan was the same. Um, oh, really? Right. And so how soon into your time at Boston were you seeking out the conducting course? Well, you know, the first two years I told myself, right, I've got to put conducting to the side because I was very lucky in high school. I conducted kind of one one piece on every concert and we had at least two concerts every year in high school mm. and so I actually had I was very fortunate to have a great mentor who just let me do it let me get on with it um so I had a lot of experience you know for 14 year old mm. or 18 year old at the, at, by the end of it all um uh, which is great but then you know going to the Boston Conservatory was a moment for me to just say right I just need to focus on the instrument. I need to make sure I get the best um, education and the best skill set as a cellist as I possibly can. So for two years, I actually did, I completely stopped conducting uh, publicly. Um, and then it wasn't until I think the end of my second year at the Boston Observatory of Music, when I first, I saw my first opera ever. Mm. Um, and it happened to be Don Giovanni, uh, that the Boston Conservatory was putting on. And I was, of course, I mean, not a bad first opera, right? I mean, no. all, all <laughs> operas. Um, but uh, I was completely floored to to be able to see this art form. You know, I never, ever was ever, you know, be able to explore it because in, in South Carolina, I mean, in South Carolina, the state itself, I'm not sure there's even one opera uh, company, let alone um, a kind of local Charleston opera company so for me mm. to to be able to explore that art form at the Boston Soldier was amazing so I, I was floored by it and I went I remember going back home uh, to my flat and instantly emailing the music director of the opera department um, Andrew Altenbach to ask if he needed an assistant mm. and that was kind of the beginning me creating my own job really um, because that was the beginning, that was the beginning of my kind of conducting tutelage um, in, during the Boston Conservatory times after this kind of two-year hiatus of intense cello uh, knowledge and studying and whatnot. I, I think it's important that one gets to a level on an instrument. I think it's so important that you, you did that. Um, yeah. But then it, it's interesting that, you know, one experience can suddenly make you go, right, you know, now's the time. I, yeah, can't, I, exactly. I cannot wait any longer. It's time yeah, to, yeah. to pick up a baton. So, you, exactly. as, you, as you said, you were the Andrew Altenbach was the, the person you wrote your email to. And did yes. he end up becoming your teacher? If he did, how did he teach you? What was the, what were his mantras? What were what was his style? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I 
he certainly was a, a mentor for sure and mm. um, you know he was i think he just began there at the boston territory or he was a year in so he was kind of trying to find i think his way as well and suddenly this random student decided to email him myself um mm. and and he said well sure i i think i, I definitely need your help I, you know it'd be great to have your help but i have no idea where this where to put you in so a lot of it was trial and error and we were just trying to figure out what the best place uh, for me was mm. um so as far as kind of one-on-one -on -one lessons that didn't that certainly never existed but what it what was what i mean what it was in, in it was also incredibly helpful was me sitting in on all of his vocal coachings which he was phenomenal at and you know as a cellist in the orchestra we simply don't we don't have as much experience with singers so no. we don't know how to breathe with singers we don't know how they work and how they function um and what they need to, what you need to say and how you need to ex, you know express something to a singer than you would you know an oboe player or, or you know a brass player it's completely different language in a way and mm -hmm. i learned that instantly by just soaking it up and being a fly on the wall and a lot of my learning really was just soaking it in and being a fly on the wall and just figuring out exactly how this art form worked mm. um and that was a lot of my learning you know I, even when my very first um kind of encounters as a conductor going back to high school now um uh, i used to uh, probably wouldn't suggest it to everyone but i used to skip classes in high school to go see the Charleston Symphony Orchestra rehearse. Mm. And yet again, it was just this fly on the wall approach where I was just listening, I was just observing and trying to soak it all in. Um, and then again, you know, that conductor was a mentor of mine, but I, I wouldn't say he was maybe a teacher. I mean, he taught me a lot, of course, mm. but uh, he was someone who, who I just learned from just by looking at them, looking at them do, doing their thing work. And Andrew was the same, very, very much that. Um, of course, whenever I had questions, he was incredibly helpful and incredibly willing to provide. But, you know, as far as kind of the one-on-one, -on -one, that didn't really happen until I went to the Royal Academy of Music and studied with Sean. It's, again, very similar to myself in the fact that, you know, I had one year of an occasion, of occasional classes at the Birmingham Conservatoire with Jonathan Del Mar. Mm. And, uh, and I, you know, I'm incredibly grateful for that one year and learned an awful lot of things about score studying and about learning scores but nothing really technical um yeah what most of what what formed me as a conductor was sitting in the second violin section of professional orchestra and watching people coming in week by week by week uh, it's amazing you know, how much you learn isn't it yeah exactly yeah i mean so it's much the same as you watching rehearsals from yeah. the auditorium i was watching you know i wasn't one of these people with the newspaper out staring at the seat or staring at that or staring at the ceiling and waiting for the day to end yeah. I was watching what they were doing and why they were doing it and why, yeah. you know, why Simon Rattle was brilliant one week and why, you know, um, the next conductor who came in the next week wasn't brilliant and it intrigued me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. It's interesting, so much you can learn um, doing it that way. Absolutely. 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 How long were you in Boston? And then, as you've just mentioned, going to the Royal Academy, when did you come to the Royal Academy? So I was in Boston for four years. Um, I left and graduated there in 2014, um, and then went to the, uh, the Royal Academy of Music uh, directly after that. And of course was there for the two year program, um, which was kind of the new, new kind of way that Sean decided to approach it. Um, myself and my really good friend and dear colleague, Ray Chan, were the first two of Sean Edwards' class. Um, so it was, it was quite a, a fun kind of transitioning time. Mm. Um, but uh, I remember at the audition with Sean that I would have been so lucky to to be able to work with her. I mean, it was instant, you know, everyone talks about how you don't pick the conservatory because of the, the title, you pick the conservatory because of the teacher. And I mm. think it's so true. And there was a moment then where I just told myself instantly, it's, you know, I had no idea. I don't, don't care where she taught. I just knew I had to study with Sean. And uh, yeah, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the beginning of my time there. And Sean Edwards's teaching style, is it 
influence because I think I'm right in saying she studied with Musin. Is it absolutely in, so? It is influenced by Musin. Um, absolutely, but also I'm sure it, I'm sure completely infused with her own styles as well. But um, can you tell mm. us the sort of things you might encounter? Um, what sort of things was she saying? She was saying that she was she studied with Musin and and um, I then went to online on YouTube to kind of look about the Musin style and technique, mm. and um, I was. I was um, amazed at the kind of the amazing videos that that are up online about Musin and, and and his his kind of way of conducting. And for me, the takeaway and, and what I learned so much with Sean is that something as simple as the music has to constantly be in your hands and you have to constantly show the music. Mm. Mm. It sounds so kind of you know mundane and really basic. Like of course that's what we all want to do. But how we go about doing it, um, what kind of what kind of technique we use, um, making sure that we use everything, you know, having all the tools at our at our dispense, and use everything that we can to show every ounce of the music. Um, and to me, that was that was the kind of hook. I suddenly mm. thought, oh, of course, that makes sense, you know. And you know, like you were saying previously sitting into some of the rehearsals and remembering gosh well why didn't that work why what, you know what, what happened here i often came back to the idea of i wonder if they showed this or i wonder if, if it happened like this or you know maybe this would happen here or something like that and suddenly that those two kind of things aligned to me and i i knew that i had to learn in this way in order to be content really with my conducting on a personal level and it was tough, you know. <laughs> I remember the first year with Sean um, was just brutal in, in the <laughs> sense that, you know, everything that we did, everything that came out of the orchestra was our responsibility, i.e. if there was, a, a, you know, an inch of a, you know, wrong, you know, ensemble or anything, it was completely our fault. Mm. And... You know, sometimes you look back at it and you think, gosh, well, maybe it wasn't entirely my fault. But it, it doesn't, for me, actually, having that mindset was really helpful mm. because the reality is, I think, as conductors, my philosophy as conducting is that we really do have a lot of control as far as, you know, how things work ensemble. You know, whether the facial structure that we have before a horn player plays a high note, if we, if we tense physically, they're going to crack. They might crack, you know, and just, yeah. you know, all these responsibilities that we have kind of within our power. Um, it just kind of really was highlighted and enhanced during my studies, particularly the first year. Um, and yeah, I just, for me that it was, it was the perfect kind of basic technical learning kind of <laughs> conducting boot camp, if you will, um, <laughs> that, that I could go through, you know, in those two years. It's funny, when Martin Brebbins came on the podcast, he talked about when he conducted the orchestra in Leningrad, as it was when he was studying there, he said he hardly ever spoke to the orchestra. If something went wrong, he would just stop and start conducting again. Um, yeah. Because he was told, let you work. You know, that it's your fault. The reason why it's not together is because of something you did or didn't do. Um, and that's it's very, very interesting. Um, yeah. That, that that level of responsibility is there and from the beginning or at least at the very beginning you're not throwing the problem back into the orchestra um, yeah, yeah yeah and I just think it says a lot about what we do what our job actually is yeah. you know um, and how much power and control that we do have just within our physical stance and our physical presence a two-year course at the academy is that correct that's right yep and you said you started in 2014 2014 that's right yeah yeah which means that halfway through your two-year course yep. you win having entered the Besançon international conducting competition um that's right that's pretty amazing stuff and especially because you've just said how difficult that first year was um tell us about entering and what was required you know how many pieces you had to learn and what it was like um and how maybe it, it sort of fits into what you've just told us about that first year well, it's really funny. It's very, and I, because I've never really thought about it until now, but for me, 
uh, that first year was absolutely essential for my preparation for that competition, actually. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because I never have time to really think about it in retrospect, but actually that first year was the perfect platform um, to, to kind of get me prepared on a real basic foundation level. The Bills on Conducting Competition is notorious for how much repertoire <laughs> is is in the, is in the competition and of course there's a, there's a lot of other competitions that are equally as as dense but the the pieces um i'm pretty sure there were must have been one two three four five i mean we're talking at least eight works in its entirety one one of them including an entire opera uh, wow. magic flute yeah um and so we just had to know the entire opera and it just had the drop of a hat you know just pick whatever selections that 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 day yeah. Um, Ravel Piano Concerto, same thing, the entire work, 4A Requiem, uh, Bartok Dance Suite, a uh, new commission by uh, Guillaume Connesson, I believe it was, um, uh, Brahms Haydn Variations, uh, John Adams, uh, Charming Dances. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, and we had to know all of it. And so once I found out that I was selected in the you know top 20, I believe it is, in the beginning, um, my entire summer was to know every single note. Yes. I mean, my mother didn't see me maybe once or twice a day when I went back home for the summer um, because I was just I was just in my room constantly studying. Um, and you know, it's it, it brings me to school study and kind of how I was learning how to school study. And I think actually that was one of the I remember that was one of the times where I actually understood what how I wanted to school study. Yeah. And it, for me, it's, it is really about knowing every single note and kind of on a really basic level. So one of the things that I remember hearing at the very beginning is how Bob Raleigh used to study. And, and you may know this already, but apparently he would literally go line by line and sing almost every single note. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't know that, actually. Yeah, I mean, that was, and I think that's been confirmed by Sir Mark Elder. I'm pretty sure that he, he's told me that as well. Um, but for me, I think what that does is, is it puts you in the, in the shoes, if you will, of each single musician that you're conducting. Mm. And then you really understand the work kind of on a basic level, a basic level, on a more in-depth level, really. Um, and then you're able, and then I'm able to pan out and understand the kind of larger picture. But this kind of micro uh, studying was something that I've obsessed with, and I'm still obsessed with actually, um, just in order to get the, the amount of detail in. Um, so I enjoyed it. I really loved it actually. And I have to admit, I, have, I really enjoy, some often I really enjoy the process of studying sometimes a bit more than the process of rehearsing and conducting it. <laughs> there's, something about, there's something about it that's absolutely riveting for me. Um, you know, I, I am more of an introvert than I am an extrovert. And that, that process of our life of conducting it, you know, sitting at home, which is why I'm doing great right now. Um, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of Mahler 6 and enjoying every single ounce of it. Mm. Um, because I've got so much time to look at the detail. But it's, it, it's not something that, that many people know or think about. You know, when, yeah. my, when people ask my wife, what does your husband do? And she says, oh, he's a conductor. Once you get you once you get past the you know the 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 joke about you know which bus route is he on, um, the 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 next thing the next thing is oh we just, well, what a lovely life he must have you know sort of swanning around mm. and flying around the world and conducting all these people and she points out to them, do you know what he spends about half the year maybe a third of the year upstairs in his study for hours on yeah. end, um, yeah. just you know with his pencils, um, and we'll come back to marking in scores towards the end of the podcast, yeah. but, but with his pencils and with his headphones on and whatever else, yeah, then it's very solitary. But if you don't enjoy doing that, which, you know, yeah. I think, I think you, every conductor must do to varying and lesser and greater degrees. If you don't yeah. enjoy that, don't yeah. become a conductor because there's hours Absolutely. of it. Hours of yeah. it. And, and as you say, weirdly, because of this current pandemic, I'm not doing any school study at all. I mean, I'm doing my podcast, mm. but when I'm back at work, you know, I look forward to, you know, 10 o'clock, bre breakfast is finished, upstairs, and often I'll look at my 
watch and think, oh, it's five o'clock. How long have I been up here and have no lunch, you know? Yeah. It's yeah, just amazing, yeah. isn't it? Um, it is, it is. And that routine, you know, it's, it's really interesting you've brought up the routine. And I've, for me, it's wake up at seven o'clock, you know, have, get the dog out to, to do its business as you will and uh, have a cup of tea and do my exercises. And then nine o'clock, I'm in my office and uh, I've studied. And, and, and just to have that normalcy for me is, is, quite, is quite relaxing and really just kind of nice to be able to look forward to something in the future, hopefully. Yeah. So going back to the competition, we've, you've learned your eight or nine pieces. I'm assuming it's just a week of intense sort of pressure, stress, ne never knowing how, you know, um, whether you've, where you are, you know, in, yeah. in all these things. What's it like? I've never yeah. entered a competition, so I don't know. And I'm intrigued to know what it's like from somebody who went all the way through and won one. Yeah. Um, it's it's interesting because I it wasn't my first competitions. Uh, I, I've done a few beforehand, and I kind of created this kind of routine in a way when I when I when I was going to go through it all because it is a lot. I mean, it's psychologically a lot. It's mm. it's physically a lot. Um, mentally, uh, you know, and you're exhausted. Um, so. You know, I, I had a really, really great uh, family, particularly as well, who took care of me at, at, at the competition. The competition is amazing for having these great uh, friend families who, who kind of support you through it all. And, um, uh, and you stay in their home and whatnot. And I would just kind of remember after every round, you know, before every round actually is a good point. Before every round, I, I would have kind of a small routine um, 10 minutes before I'm on, I would go outside and mm. just be away from all of it from for a little while. Um, take a lot of huge, uh, you know, nice deep breathing and whatnot. And then I would always eat a banana right before going on stage. <laughs> and, and then, you know, five minutes, two minutes before, I would only wait two minutes before I'm, I'm, I was called in to be close to the stage because there's so much anxiety that you can feel when you're just right close to the stage. Mm. Um, and that's something I learned on very, 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 very early. So uh, two minutes on, and then I, I, do, I do the round. And then uh, you know, a lot of the waiting game is just, uh, just me trying to think about the next round, really. Mm. So even before the announcement was made, I was looking at the, the next scores. And how much notice do you get you've gone through round two and round three is the Bartok dance suite. How much notice yeah. do you get as to which movements you're going to rehearse? I'm pretty sure that we didn't know until we got there. Okay. Um, particularly with the final two rounds. Um, the final, the very, very final round, of course, we did the entire, we did the entire works. Mm. We were notified of that. Um, and they gave us a free, a, a day off in, in between, which is amazing because mm. I don't think we could have done it when we beforehand, it was just straight on. Um, but for, you know, the Revel Piano Concerto, which was in the semi-final and for a Requiem, I, I di we didn't know until we were on stage. Um, and it was excerpts, excerpts. And, you know, can you imagine, Revel Piano Concerto with, I mean, we had a phenomenal pianist, um, Alice Sarah Ott, I don't know if you know Oh, her. yeah, 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 um, yeah. But she was just brilliant. And she, poor, poor, poor her, she had to play it eight times, um, but different excerpts, you know. And, yes. um, and she was lovely to work with, but, you know, I never worked with her before. Um, and I remember one of the big greatest feedback with her, from her was, you know, you were the only conductor to ask me what my tempo were. <laughs> and I suddenly thought, you know, actually, that's it, isn't it? If you just, if you act like this is more of a professional experience and just yes. go out of there. And, and, and that was the biggest, the hugest thing that I suggest to anyone who's looking to do a competition is don't do it for the gold at the end. Do it for the experience. Mm. Because the reality is, as young conductors, that's what we need. And if you just solely are there to just get out as much out of the experience as you possibly can, you can't go wrong. You don't mm. lose. Mm. Um, and I think that's, I mean, that's the one thing. I mean, so many people put so much pressure on themselves. And of course, it is a competition. I understand the nature. 
Um, but equally, I solely did all of these competitions um, on the back of that I needed the experience. I think that's the right attitude. Uh, you, there's a lovely phrase you just used, and I'm going to talk about after winning. Uh, you just said about the gold at the end. And um, part of yeah. that gold at the end is usually after winning a competition is a whole raft of engagements guest conducting with orchestras but you still had one year left at the royal academy so how did you manage uh, that D did you put some yeah. of them off or basically because you knew you had a year left with sean edwards at the royal academy or or did you just throw yourself into it what happened the net what as i say what happened next jonathan <laughs> it's really funny because you know what happened the next day is even more funny um, right. because i had to get back to england very very soon because i had a, i think i had a class either either the next day or the day or on that day so i remember jumping on the first train back from paris uh, to paris to to england and suddenly I was right. I mean, almost nothing changed in the sense that I just had to go back to classes, <laughs> and, um, which was quite nice, actually, because, you know, when you win it, it's, it, it's amazing. I mean, but you get thrown so many things, you know, after at the after party and, and things like that. And so many people come up to you and whatnot. And what I was incredibly grateful for was um, that the Boussonson Conducting Competition uh, gave you one of the prizes was a year with um, an artistic kind of um, agent if you will yeah. and and she, her name was Amy Perrett and she was fantastic because all these people were coming up to me asking me if I wanted to do this that, and the other mm -hmm. and of course I was on cloud nine and completely exhausted and probably pretty drunk by that point um, <laughs> uh, and and the last thing I wanted to say to anyone was yes yes sure of course why not well, I had this lady this woman was there actually at you know helping me already mm. um instantly and so that was amazing and one of the things one of the main things that she helped me with is you know basically panning out to see what these engagements were and the offers were and then also panning out to see what agency i would be going for because there are yes. a few offers on the table within weeks um yeah, which I'm is sure. daunting yeah. you know yeah so daunting when you're when you're just starting out you know and trying trying to choose the best you know just agent the best engagement what's going to be good what's going not going to work and so you know i was very lucky and very fortunate to kind of get the advice that i had um from amy perrett who just in the beginning just said you know what two weeks completely off let's not think about this and i'll come to london and we'll sit down and we'll have a conversation and what we ended up doing is spreading, like you said, spreading out um, a lot of the engagements for further years, further seasons, um, and then doing the ones that kind of, uh, you know, that that I could kind of get by with, as well as kind of, you know, st staying at the academy and keeping on my studies. Uh, we did, we fit some of those in as we could. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of it was very slow to begin with. Um, and, and that's something I would highly suggest to anyone who wins one of these big competitions. Well, I didn't know that about having an artistic advisor or, a, you know, call it what you, yeah. what you will. And I think that's wonderful aftercare by that competition. Um, mm. And absolutely, I think it's also worth pointing out to people that you may tell me I'm wrong, but I mean, in my case, I, you know, I'm completely different. I was... 35 when conducting first started happening for me and i went and i actively sought out trying to get an agent which is tough and daunting and frightening and quite a lonely thing but i'm assuming also that having in the immediate aftermath of winning that whirlwind you're going to be you're going to be the chum in the water with lots of sharks swimming around you um, and that's probably also just a daunting to think who do i choose what do i you know when yeah really what you want is the arm around the shoulder to say right take your time as she said two weeks off and then we'll Precisely. talk about it and i think i think that's such a far-sighted approach by that competition yeah i don't know whether yeah. they all do that do you know whether they all do that no no they don't and right. this is something that i find completely shocking um mm. because it just changes your world overnight um, yes. And it, it, for me, Amy, and she's still a dear friend, and she still gives amazing consultancies to a lot of different people. But mm. one of the biggest things that I suggested to Bouzonson is that they keep Amy there no matter what. 
um, because it's it goes she goes way beyond above and beyond the call of duty she is perfect at her job she knows she's had so many years in, ex, ex, in experience in the business um and you just need that and you know to kind of further what you were saying earlier i think it's yes you you, you do feel like you're kind of you know circled by sharks in a way mm. and i think that's a perfect analogy but also what you're looking for is trust you have yes. to find you know some someone that you can trust and of course this extends out to when you start looking for management but you have to find someone who's who's going to really you, you, that you can trust rather um completely um and when you're starting out and you just you have no concept of of this you, you just have to have that person who really understands you as an artist and understands um that they, that you are giving them so much trust um by kind of sharing your career in a sense so the next big thing for you is um, Manchester uh, and it's yes. the assistant job of uh, the Halley Orchestra and yeah. Yeah. Uh, how was that? I mean I've been lucky enough already on this podcast to talk to Ed Gardner who was the first person to take that role oh, on yes. and yeah. also to Sir Mark himself who of course was the absolutely. instigator of it. It was it was absolutely incredible um, I, it was so perfectly placed as well in my career because I had just won this competition and you know things were starting to look great and you know a few months after that then of course I, I was signed to a small boutique agent um, and you know they uh, they had been struggling to find someone um, for, for a little bit of time and they I think then the year before they had put some auditions up and they didn't work or whatever the case may be and and then they kind of decided to do it by word of mouth and oh. uh, Jonathan Groves um, who is uh, Sir Mark's um, agent uh, had heard about me winning this competition and so basically mentioned my name to Mark Elder and uh, we had met Mark and I had met very briefly as I was assisting him at, um, at the Royal Academy of Music uh, doing Shostakovich 6 mm. and I didn't conduct in front of him but I kind of vaguely assisted him alongside three other colleagues and we didn't really get to know each other very very much um, but it, of course, for me, it was an amazing experience. And then to kind of find out that, uh, you know, he was interested in, in possibly having me for the job. We, we had a trial period at first. So um, I did a bit of assisting um, another Shostakovich symphony, Shostakovich 15. Um, and that was a lovely week. And then I was invited to an audition with uh, two other candidates. Um, in which I conducted Sibelius One, mm. which was, of course, with the Halle, just absolutely amazing, yeah. um, and such an amazing work to to do with him. And yeah, I, the rest is history. Then I I got the job, um, and uh, you know I started in September. I had just graduated from the academy in July, um, literally packing my things up uh, during graduation and remembering trying to find a flat in in Manchester. And so it was it was daunting. <laughs> it was another daunting, you know, a lovely, amazing, and on, it's such an honor, an honorable achievement. And I was so lucky to be able to have it. But it was so daunting to go to go to Manchester, pack everything up, um, and start my new job. You know, mm. from being fresh out of out of the academy. I'm I'm interested to know because it's popped into my head just, uh, and it's going back to the being mentored and having somebody to on the end of a phone after you'd won the competition. I'm assuming that there will be certain people in your life around this time who would wonder, either openly or not, hang on, he's just won the, this competition, worldwide international competition. Why is he going off to be an assistant conductor? You know, basically your career yeah. is made up for you. You know, I'm, I'm putting all of this in inverted commas. He's, you know, yeah. That's it, your career is made. He's won the pop yeah. There's agents swarming all around him. Why are you going to be an assistant? Did anybody ever say that? Um, that's really funny. No, that's a really great question. And I, yeah. I completely understand why you're asking it. Um, 
there's this assumption that you're a ready-made product. Exactly, um, yeah. Which when I mean, you're, you're not. Yeah. You know, but no. Uh, I just wonder because that's what some and I, I, you know, I know players who would probably say, "Oh, just get out there and get on with it." But it's not. You know, I think you made the right decision. Let me put that well, right yeah. on the table now. Yeah. But, but you can <laughs> understand mean, the reason for the question because I'm sure absolutely. Would, uh, would have said yeah, that. absolutely. And I, I think they're absolutely wrong to think yes. it. Because I I had so much to learn. <laughs> I mean, it was it was just the beginning. And look, the reality with competitions, and I'll be the first one to admit it after winning one. That was one time, one occasion with what a certain orchestra at a certain competition. Yeah. And I'm I'm very lucky and I'm still very honored to to get that. But that doesn't mean I know everything. No. That certainly doesn't mean that I I have the preparation to start my career as an international conductor. I mean, I was far from it. I was absolutely far from it. And I was the first one to reflect on that. I knew that I had so much to learn. And I also knew that I could gain it, gain all that knowledge that I needed in the time uh, with the Halle and with Sir Mark, yeah. initially being two years, thankfully extending to three. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, it, this, it baffles me, you know, as a conductor, particularly as a, conductor, a young conductor, I was 23 when I won the competition. To say that I was ready, you know, to, yeah. to start conducting internet, that was absolute silliness. I mean, absolute silliness. I knew I had so much to learn. Um, and that's, that is the main reason why I decided to, to, to I mean, it was a no-brainer, really. Yeah. Um, but it, and I, it was also, I mean, it, on a personal level, um, I wanted to stay in the UK. Mm. And this was, this was a huge thing for me. And uh, so it, it for a personal level i i it, it kind of ticked the box for a professional level it was a no-brainer yeah well i mean that's exactly what i thought you'd say and that's what i would have said um mm. if somebody asked me that question you know that and also this is partly through you know i was assistant conductor with the cbsa but my job was different because i was in the orchestra but then alpesh followed me and jonathan Bloxham followed him and i was always involved mm. with the with the assistants and I know from both of those and everybody who's done that job since and also through speaking to Ed and through speaking to you, the value of spending time, it's not just with Sir Mark or with Andrew no. Nelson's or with me again now at Birmingham. Mm. It's about spending time to standing in tea queues with people from the violas and the third <laughs> horn and and yeah. just finding out things that, you know, you don't get taught. Uh, yes. In, sitting yeah. in the, at the Royal Academy or the Conservatoires, you know. Exactly. And, ex and I think that's you've you've hit the nail on the head for me. And, you know, what you learn at the Royal Academy of Music is, of course, so essential. It is yes. absolutely, you know, you have to have that foundation. You have to, in order to get anywhere, you have to have a good technique and foundation. Um, but what they're not able to give you in a way, and it's not their expectations. I don't think it's they need to give, be able to teach this. I think it actually just needs to go through within a different system you know like an assistantship um and it, but what you don't learn like i said in in the time of the academy is is the small ins and outs of what a conductor actually does mm. and um you know the halle job is kind of the halle assistant job rather is is kind of three jobs in one i, I like to think because you're you're not only assistant to mark and some other guest conductors you're also the music director of the Halle Youth Orchestra mm -hmm. and you're also the main conductor for the education concert which is another skill within itself um, God, God and, is it ever yeah <laughs> yeah yeah uh, yeah and it's just and it's a lovely skill to know and it's yeah. a lovely skill to learn and it's yeah. it probably was um, one of the most enjoyable part of my jobs is doing these education concerts to up to 20 thousand school students uh, locally a year mm. is something that was absolutely amazing and I loved it I love every part of that um, but that's you just can't almost get that experience at, a, at the academy and I don't think there should be an expectation to get that experience I no. mean to some degree assisting yes maybe but you know the other stuff is just you know like like any other conductor you just learn through through being assistant mm. Talking about being an assistant, um, I think it was during these three years you also became a conducting a Dudamel conducting fellow at the Los Angeles Philharmonic. I think you're yes. the first person I've spoken to who's done this. Uh, oh, what's, right. in what's entailed um, by being a Dudamel conducting fellow? Because I don't know, I have no idea. Yeah, so um, I was, of course, still doing my job at the Halle and trying to manage that. So it was basically for me, it became three patches of work. 
And I think that that's, that's what it ends up being for everyone. Um, and so the first patch, you get to assist at the Hollywood Bowl, which is quite <laughs> a spectacle, yeah. particularly as assisting, because you're, of course, thinking about balance, but you're thinking about balance in this huge outdoor stadium. Mm. Um, and you're trying to give notes and, and, and listen in a completely different way. And I thought it was... I thought it was an amazing experience in that sense that you, you know, it's not a concert hall, it's it's an outdoor venue. Yeah. And you have to tell sound technicians what you can hear and what you can't hear. And that's just a completely different uh, skill set of, of ears in a way. Yes. Um, and so I was very fortunate to assist um, uh, Vasily Petrenko twice in, that, in my time there. Um, and, you know, what was great is that the amount of connection that you do have with the guest conductors is is fantastic. Um, you you there is a little bit of time that you always get to go through the piece um, with them, and and the way that the LA Phil administrators organise that is is actually quite quite great, and I, I really enjoyed that process of it. And the second time, I believe I actually then uh, made my my debut with them and that's before the subscription debut because initially i was going to do this community concert in east los angeles and i did and, and it was a lovely community concert it was free for everyone uh, in the area up to about 1500 people came to this um, college and uh, and that was kind of the scheduled debut if you were with mm. the la phil within um two days after that i got a phone call um from the administration uh, saying that uh, Miguel Hath Bedoya mm. had just called in sick and they needed someone to conduct their subscription series concerts and on the back of the debut the musicians um, had wondered if I was interested in conducting um, and this is all at short notice so the that was Monday and then the next day I was to start rehearsals for the subscription series mm-hmm. um, that isn't a part of the of the of the Dudamel Fellowship, of course, to conduct a subscription series. No, but a um, nice bonus. <laughs> yeah, but a lovely, lovely bonus. Um, I, I of course um, said yes, but I, I probably had never been so nervous in my life, um, to the point where I was having night sweats. Um, because it was this fantastic piece, um, but uh, also a very, very difficult piece, and um, this uh, Bernstein Serenade with Hilary Hahn. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah that, that's tough. Yeah. It's a really hard piece. And, mm. you know, as, as cover conductor, of course, of course, we, we look at these things and we study these things, but it's a completely different mindset if you're going to conduct it. You know, like I said, my, my neighborhood concert, I had known like the back of my hand, I knew the music on that that program but um i remember of course i looked at the bernstein but to rehearse it was completely of a whole another ball game Mm. so overnight um i had to really dig deep into this piece um and learn it enough to rehearse it the next day um the experience was amazing um and hillary was was great the orchestra was fantastic and they were so so supportive throughout it all um that you know the the whole thing was just quite a lovely lovely thing by the end of it mm. um in addition to those concerts i then I, I also was conducting my my set of education concerts which i was supposed to do uh during that time as well so i it was a busy week for me and um a busy week at the walt disney concert hall for sure mm. um but it, it was an amazing experience backed by some of the greatest support from the administration the musicians and hillary um but so you you kind of you get that uh, with the dudamo fellowship you get this um potential of of having to step in as a cover conductor um but then you you are given the education concerts and and if and i like in my case i was also given community concerts as well um and then the last last time i was there the very final time i i finally got to meet gustavo um and assist him for a great project that they were doing of all these Schumann symphonies they were recording. And that was an amazing experience just to get, just to see how he works with the orchestra. Because of course, like you said, it's really interesting how you pointed out the CBSO and how they react to to rattle. Um, 
and versus in how they react to the next conductor next week and yeah, you can yeah. see it in a way i mean it's an amazing you know kind of psychological experiment in a way um to see how they react to their music director and if there is a great relationship with there's a beautiful relationship with dudamel the elephant they they completely adore him and in, in, in it's two-way street completely um but to see them come alive um i mean it's just it's just like it's just it, what i'd imagine like driving an aston martin just looking the thrill of it all is just is amazing is an absolute incredible pleasure to be a part of mm. so there's a lot of work with it but there's a lot of also just assisting and and getting to getting to grips with that kind of caliber of an orchestra was thrilling for me really really thrilling As you said, you delayed some of those guest engagements that came as your prize for winning the competition. But at some point, you must do them. I'm assuming that um, eventually, uh, once you'd, leave, you'd left the Halle and you'd stopped doing the Dudamel Conducting Fellow, that you were then on the hamster wheel of guest conducting, as I like to call it, doing first dates with orchestras yes. all over Europe and the United States and around the world. How how did you cope with guest conducting? And I'm assuming that it was during one of these guest conducting engagements that you first met the Nordwestdeutsche Philharmonie, who you are going to start as chief conductor in 2021. Um, I'm yes. assuming that was the case. Yeah, that that you're absolutely right. Um, I it must have been October of the same year that I started becoming freelance, essentially. Mm. Um, that I worked with with Nordwest Director Philharmonie, and actually uh, it was amazing because it was it also happened to be my debut at um, the Concertgebouw mm. um, in Amsterdam, and uh, we, we were just doing this uh, one series of Halloween concerts for kids, um, and then we did a series of concerts in, in Germany. And what was amazing was the downbeat of the first rehearsal that instantly I felt a connection with this orchestra and having guest conducted for a few months before then because I, I'd only really just stopped you know with the Halle now it'll be about a year next month so I've only been kind of on the on the freelancing tool for at that point for just a few months um, but to kind of get that instant connection with with an orchestra um, and having known, you know, been guest conducting with other other orchestras was just an amazing, really amazing experience. Mm. Um, and I'll never forget it. And I remember um, the the first violist coming up to me and saying, you know, you should really stay. <laughs> and and I instantly felt the same way. I, I instantly felt that this orchestra is is incredibly hardworking, first and foremost which is something I respect gratefully about this orchestra, but they, they understand my language. And I don't mean my German because it's shite. As it's, <laughs> um, but but I, I mean my musical language. Yeah. And, and for me, that is so, I'm so lucky, you know, so lucky to have an orchestra like that. And I know my luck, you know, to be able to, for them to really understand exactly what I want. And mm. um, it's such a beautiful relationship when you have it. And so, um, I, I was I was floored by my experience with them, and and really floored when um, the intendant of the orchestra came to visit me in January when I was working in Germany with another orchestra, and offered me the job, nice. um, which was quite shocking. You know, just a few months directly after after working with them, um, and so it all happened quite fast because by that point it was January, and then March was the announcement of the job. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a, it was a real, real beautiful thing to kind of happen. Yet again, another thing that just happened so quick. Mm. Um, but of course, now I'm 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 dying to go back to them. I'm so so looking forward to to working with them. We talked earlier about score prep, and you told me how you like to learn a score. The one thing that conducting geeks like to know, because they message me on Twitter and Facebook and tell me that they like it, is. Do you write in your scores? Are you a scribbler or are you a, 
Um, I was editing a podcast yesterday, um, which will come out fairly soon, which the, that particular conductor said that he liked his scores to be virginal and untouched by any pen or pencil. What do you like? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. Um, up until I met Sir Mark, Mm. I remember writing a lot in my in my scores. You know, I was kind of the coloured pencil kind of guy, mm. and um, and I and I really liked a lot of markings. And I remember looking at his score, and we had a conversation about it. And he said, "Well, if you're writing a lot, then you, you probably don't know it." <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was that was actually it. Just kind of I kind of it struck me, and I thought, "Oh well." Yeah, of course. I, I, I kind of understand what you mean by that. And and look, that doesn't mean for everyone. And, and, no, but no. I but I suddenly I suddenly saw felt myself writing a lot less actually, no. and just writing the necessary things that I needed. Um, and so, to answer your question, it started out. You should see some of my scores in high school. I mean, I think I had a highlighter phase as well. Um, oh. And it, it is it is like a coloring book in there. And my track four, my I remember my first score I've ever had is is kind of hideous, and I can't read it anymore. Um, but uh, but I slowly I've really I'm trying the minimalistic approach, and I I do find it's what it does is it just brings out what's there, yeah. you know, what's already on the page. Um, and you know, with a score like Marlowe particularly, I'm actually quite careful about what I add. Um, because anything that I add in, I just want to make sure isn't going to distort what you know Marlowe have already basically spelt out for us as conductors. Jonathan, it is 10 questions time. And as usual, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? So I think the sound that I love is when you water a plant for really, and it hasn't been watered for a really long time. And it makes this kind of crackling noise. It's an amazing sound, actually. So that's one of my favorite sounds. Um, and the sound that I absolutely hate is anything to do with ice kind of scraping against something completely gets underneath my teeth and oh. drives me nuts. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Oh, it's hiking for me. I absolutely love walking and hiking and the outdoors, 100% hiking. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Oh, this is hard. I do remember this now being the difficult answer. Um, you know, I have to say, I think if I had one, and it's a recent yesteryear for sure, um, it'd be Mercy Anson's, if I could say that. Yes, of course you could. Yeah. yeah. And who would be a favourite current conductor? Uh, for me, it's Simeon Bishkov. Is uh, you know he, the way he conducts in his his recordings of Russian music particularly is something that's been thrilling and very inspiring for me. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? I think for me it's Schoenberg's Chamber Symphony, and the only reason why I think I say it is I love a good go at it now, <laughs> but I conducted it when I was way too young and way too inexperienced, and I just remember having night sweats about that one as well. So it has to be Schoenberg's Chamber Symphony. Was it just the sheer technical requirements? Yeah, it was technical, yes. And also just trying to understand the, the kind of root meaning of what he was trying to achieve. Mm. I found that so, it was, be, it was way beyond me. I was just starting at the Boston Conservatory of Music and I just said that how I didn't conduct. But that was the one thing I did conduct, actually. I remember I did conduct. And it probably put me off of it. And that's probably the other reason why I stopped for two years. <laughs> when travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? It's only recently that I've been doing this, but actually it's my pillow. And it's Ooh. because every hotel has a different pillow. And my head, you know, the, you know, your head is either too high or too, too low. Whereas if you have your own pillow, you have no problems and you can get at least a good first night's sleep. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Gosh, I think, you know, the one thing I would change is kind of slightly less travel which is something that I think is going to happen pretty soon anyways <laughs> yeah. um I do love being at home and I love I love kind of school studying the most so less travel actually would be quite nice what profession other than your own would you like to attempt uh this is an easy one for me uh, psychology as a psychologist oh, I, I absolutely love the behavioral studies of of human beings which is kind of another great thing about being a conductor. 
Yeah, well, it's intrinsic, isn't it? I mean, you've got Absolutely. to be able to at least work out what the mood in the room is, even if it isn't an individual. Um, Precisely. Absolutely. In a previous episode, I read out a list of requirements that an orchestra gave to Mark Wigglesworth, that they, that what the players thought a conductor should be and not be. And the list was long. The list was uh, often contradictory, um, but you know, one of those things is uh, one of those things is psychology, and, and you know, a good psychologist. Yep. And so, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, only way to survive in this in this field, I think. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? So for me, it's a nice medium well filet mignon with a glass of Oban 14 scotch Ooh. on the rocks. Oh, lovely. Oh, I do like a single malt. <laughs> oh, good. Oban's my house scotch, if I can dare to say. Mm. What a pleasure. And um, thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you, Jonathan. And I hope... Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. All the very best. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat to an English conductor who divides his time between conducting, teaching, commissioning new works, and being one of the world's preeminent oboists. Until then, bye-bye.